how marvelous, how wonderful. And our song will ever be, our song will ever be, we are light. We saw the verse earlier from Ephesians. Thank you, Caleb. That was absolutely appropriate. There is, of course, when Tim said, would you like to preach? I got a plethora of stuff inside me I'd love to just share, but I really, oh, yeah, children. <laughs> oh, children, you are dismissed at this time. All right? Awesome. I really, I see a parallel between 1 John going into chapter 2 and where we're at as a church in America. So if you hear something here and it feels like, hey, Mark, I don't know you well enough. You can't really say that to me. I'm using the word of God. And I'm speaking in an overall, the bride of Christ that we sing about, that we are part of, has lost her luster. She has lost much of her influence in our culture. And that's no fault of Jesus Christ. And I know right now on my heart, immediately, just now, I thought of Phineas. And they were having a prayer meeting, and a man and a woman got up to go do something unseemly, especially in the presence of holy God. And Phineas, in zeal for God's holiness, acted upon that. Many of you are familiar with that. And it was an act of violence. And God blessed him for it, for his zeal, and his family for generations thereafter. I don't feel in Christ Jesus, ours is a method of violence. But we have a job to do, and it's to be light. And it's not something we have to put on. It's something he has already placed within us by his spirit, every one of us in this room. And we can go be salt and light in this world. Not out of our strength. I know all about ebbing strength. If we try it on our own, we're going to belly flop. We've already done it that way. Let's try it with God in control, with Jesus at the helm. And by his Holy Spirit flowing in us and working in us together jointly as the body of Christ, we can become influential in our nation again. One cool thing about God that we know is it's never too late to repent. It's never too late. Isn't God awesome for that? So this morning we come into 1 John chapter 1. Let's read through it. That which was from the beginning, and by the way, you will have to suffer with me through NIV. All right? Thank you. Aaron for arranging that. I just got a brand new ESV Bible this morning. All right. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Father, we come before you. And I ask, Lord, that you would cease within us, within our minds. We are frail. We are easily distracted. The Bible is clear on that. And ask us, Lord, to put away the British Open and the Asian giants and bills piled up at home or job insecurity or wrestling within our own families. Lord, the things that easily entangle us... We want to sit and eat from your word, Father. Your word says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. I ask that you fill us, Lord, with your word this morning. Not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. On your notes. And for those of you who don't know me well, I am a crybaby when we open the word, so get over it. <laughs> we have been enabled by God to consistently exemplify his radiance, truth, and character to a world groping about in darkness. We have been enabled by God to consistently exemplify his radiance, truth, and character to a world groping about in darkness. They both start with an E. That's as easy as I can make it for you. All right. A little bit of history, and I'm gonna, we're going to truck right on through here. I want you to have some background. What is First John? When did it take place? Who was it written to? Why was it written? The book is dated between 85 and 95 AD. The author is John, son of Zebedee, brother of James. They were both fishermen. You can read about that if you want. Matthew 4, Mark 1. There is a little bit of comedy. I love while I was researching yesterday. A little bit of comedy. I thought it was comical. And Jesus came, and there were James and John with Zebedee, their father, in the fishing boat, mending their nets. And Jesus called them, and they immediately left their nets, see that, and followed Jesus. Two things in that. I'm rather sick of fishing. It's not a glamorous life. Throw the net, pull the net, empty the net, throw the net, pull the net. And it was hard work. But I also see... Jesus called them, they went. And I really believe, and I know out of my own life, if I'll speak a fault, I'll pick me first. I'm at the front of the line. There are so many times when the Lord will whisper or call to you or me. It's not really convenient. Not, not right now, Lord. Maybe tomorrow. Man, how can you go wrong? If Jesus calls you, he's got a plan. And there's a lot of it we don't understand. He leads, I follow. He leads, I follow. It's pretty simple. Jesus changed the beginning of the world with 12 apostles, one of whom betrayed him. And they were not Rhodes Scholars. They weren't MIT graduates. But by God's power and his Holy Spirit came change. Why? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Okay, the author is John. 
He was the first cousin of Jesus, son of Salome, who was sister of Mary. He was one of Jesus's inner circle with Peter and James. And according to John in, verse thir in chapter 13, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. All right, we'll take his word for that because the Bible is truth. Uh, though 1 John does not identify its author, early church fathers all identified John as author, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement, Origen, and so forth. There's no question on his authorship. The style is very similar to the Gospel of John in simple Greek and using contrast frequently, light and dark, life and death, truth and lies, love and hate. There are numerous similarities in phrases and expressions between the Gospel of John and 1 John, verse for verse. The authoritative manner of the book, giving commands, giving firm assertions, pointing out identification of error, suggests apostolic authorship. John is the author. The book was a circular letter sent to believers throughout Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, to the churches of Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, Sardis, Thyatira, and so forth. You can look on a map in the back of your Bible. That's what I did. John's readers were being confronted with heretical, false teaching. Heretical. I mean, that's heresy. That's a term we use a lot. All right? With false teaching. But why I chose this book, because we as a culture and a church in that culture have to make sure that we are impermeable. Fish lives in salt water. When you cut it, it's fresh fish. It's not salty. So they're in it, but it's not permeating them. Does that make sense? That's as simple as I can make the illustration. I borrowed that from Rick Warren. Always steal when you can't think of one yourself. John's readers were being confronted with false teaching. Gnosticism in its early stages in the first century became much more complicated and intricate web of do's and don'ts in the second and third centuries. Let's take a quick look at the background of 1 John, most of which is Serinthianism. We'll get to it. Here are five basic things. Man's body, which is matter, is entirely evil. This contrast with God who is entirely spirit and therefore good. This is Gnosticism, all right? Salvation is escape from the body, achieved not by faith in Christ Jesus, but by special knowledge of God. And when I read that, immediately I thought of Colossians 2.8, which either Ben or Tim did just a couple weeks ago. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies, which depend on uh, basic principles of this world and human tradition rather than on Christ. If you're a visitor today to our church, we want to let you know something as a collective body. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And it will never be anything else. Jesus, his Holy Spirit, and his word will guide us and lead us into what we need for successful living. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's what he said. I haven't come that you be miserable and give you a set of borderline rules that you have to follow because I am God and I enjoy those things watching you suffer. <laughs> Next one. Oh, I got to have these, man. I'll tell you, it's getting bad. Christ... By the way, who was fully God, simultaneously fully God and fully man, had his, in Gnosticism, humanity denied in two ways. One was docetism. He only seemed to have a body. Ooh. And divine Christ, spirit Christ, joined man, Jesus, at baptism and left him before he died. That's Serinthianism. They had a philosopher or something named Serinthus. That is a lot. Serinthianism is a lot of the background of 1 John. Since the body, which is matter, is therefore evil, needed to be treated harshly. That's asceticism, and it's talked about in Colossians chapter 2. Paradox. Oh, by the way, Colossians chapter 2, and you'll find this out. And I've said this before to other congregation, but... 
he's writing in there and he's saying all these things, this asceticism, you can, like the hunchback of Notre Dame, and you remember the guy was looking out and he wanted Esmeralda, but he's flagellating, beating himself, bloody. And it says right in the Bible, all these things have no control over what's on the inside. You can pulverize yourself. You can diet and be strict. You can fall into legalism to change the reality of transformation is by God's indwelling Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, you shall be holy for I am holy. Good luck. <laughs> I'm there with you. And it will take place if you're willing. That's it. All we have to do is submit to Christ. So we treat it harshly. The paradox of this this dualism led to licentiousness, which is moral unrestraint, especially sexually. The reason being, since matter is evil and not the breaking of God's will, breaking his laws of no moral consequence. Gnosticism was libertine, throwing off all moral restraint. You can also find out about Gnosticism in the writings of 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and 2nd Peter. So why did John write this book? What's his purpose? And I kind of worked backwards from chapter 5 forward. To give believers assurance of salvation. To combat Gnostic teachers and their lack of morality. To expose false teachers. And to give eyewitness apostolic testimony to the incarnation to confirm his reader's belief in the incarnate Christ. We're done with the intro. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. We've heard it. We've seen it. We've looked at and our hands have touched. He's the real deal. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. You can read uh, in Acts chapter 1, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read Luke's writing here. Oh, excellent Theophilus, his buddy. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That's 1, 1 through 4. Also, the reference, as we just read, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You're very familiar with this in John chapter 1. If you're not familiar with it, put it in your arsenal. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. End of discussion in my book. Without him, nothing was made that's been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only begotten son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was true God and true man, fully human. He didn't seem to be. And Paul, uh, John is writing here to assure them this is the real deal. And we, the reference to we, is John and the apostolic. Because we change gears down in verse 6 and the we becomes something else. The we becomes all of us, John and his readers. Right now, it is the apostles. So with this authority, guess what? We've heard him. We've seen him. We've looked at our hands of touch. We just read he was with them for 40 days, gave many signs. He ate and drank with him. He appeared to more than 500. And if you ever study apologetics, they'll tell you that some people drastically opposed to anything Jesus. Well, it was mass hypnosis. Yeah. That's easier to believe than the truth. Please. So we come to verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and has appeared to us. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Acts, Romans, Corinthians, 1, 2, 3, 4. Here we are. 15, 3 through 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, which means died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And that is basically Paul saying on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus in a totally incredible revelatory way that was unusual. We share fellowship. Fellowship. We have fellowship. What's his desire and what makes him have great joy? That our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, and we're sharing it with you. It's what we desire. It's what we want. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. This is one thing about Christianity. If the love of Christ lives in you, you want people. You want to share it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not something that has in my life seemed to come naturally. Oh, we're at a restaurant. Dad's going to pray. Make it short, Dad. <laughs> what if my friends see me? What if my friends see me? Ooh. Were you praying before you ate? Ha! I don't. What is that fear thing? We should say, I got something. You got to have it. I always think of the guy by the gate, beautiful. All he'd known for 40 years from his birth until Peter came along. Peter said, I ain't got no money. Or Here's what I got. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. 40 years, everyone knew him. That guy sprang to life. <laughs> he was going to town and he wasn't stopping. Even as the Sanhedrin gathered together and said, hey, get those guys in here. They're creating a scene. People are starting to think and they're not falling under our subordination. And they brought him in, and Peter's standing there going, hey, you're going to have to knock it off and shut this stuff up. It's not true. We don't want to hear any more about it. Well, this guy's boingy, boingy, boingy right next to him. And Peter says, I know what you're asking me. What are you going to do about him? <laughs> and change came through that in people's belief system. This is part of why we're sharing today, because... I believe that well-intended, we can still have the wool pulled over his eye, and I speak out of my own life with what God has brought upon me, for which I have thanked him profusely, and I, th I have shared with Kelly and Ben and Tim, this is the best, best thing God's ever done, because I'm a stubborn mule, and I'm thick-skulled, and there's a little pea brain somewhere down in that bone mass, hard to get through. And I'm sorry to say that it has taken this to rock my world and break me. The Lord has set me free, and I can share that with you. I'm not going into detail. A 47-year-long habit that I brought to God out of Romans 7. Hey, Paul said, you know, the very thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I'm doing. The thing I really want to do, I'm not doing that. Who's going to save me, the wretched man that I am? God broke a 47-year chain. Praise God. I'm so thankful for that. I'm sorry it took what it took, but I am grateful to God. And I tell you, if you're here today and you have something that you wrestled for years and years and years, whether it's unforgiveness or it's lust or it's what. Whatever hatred, anger, bursts of rage. You can read Galatians 5, 16 through 21. There's a list there for you. If you've suffered under that, 
I encourage you and I beg you in the name of Jesus, do not wait for a quenching blow to bring you to where you can freely walk into. You can freely walk into it. That's his desire. All right, starting to preach. Get back to your notes. <laughs> what is fellowship? It's this union. It's a joining. It's becoming one with. We share together. What's the focal point here? If you're a visitor, here it is in the Bible. Our fellowships with the Father and with his Son. And we write this and share it with you to make our joy complete. We share together in Jesus, Lord, King, Savior, Redeemer, Son of God, Father, Provider, Healer, my banner, Shepherd, Peace, Righteousness. Someone sent me in this congregation a card, and I still have it on my table. It's Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless, bless the Lord, and forget not his benefits. And on it goes. We have, we have. It's not a maybe. You have been given in Christ Jesus. We have in Christ these benefits. Forgiveness of sin, Jehovah Sikenu, our righteousness, Jehovah Makedesh, he sanctifies. We have fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jehovah Shalom, he is peace. Jehovah Shama, he is there. Soundness of body and mind. Jehovah Rophe or Rapha, I've heard, he heals. We have Success in Christ, freedom from the curse of the law. Jehovah provides. We have security in Christ, freedom from the fear of death and hell. Jehovah Nisi, my banner. Jehovah Rohai, my shepherd. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, I want to read it and then we'll ask our simple question there that you have. Blessed is the man, because I read earlier success, and I did a double check on that because I know there's prosperity theology. There's, uh, there are several different theologies. I'm going to base it based on what I read here in Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 15, it will tell you, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. It is so far easier for good to be pulled downward than good to draw evil upward. And we see that throughout biblical history. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Let me ask you a question. Can you meditate on what you're ignorant of? No, you cannot. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask by God's anointing over you that he will place in you a hunger that you will make time every day and spend time with God and his word. Then you can meditate on it. And if you make that effort, I promise you and guarantee you, he will place it in your heart and it will become as easy as breathing. And when you're driving down the road or you're stuck in traffic on 101 as I am every day, you have something to go to if your radio is broken, which it is. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. You are a dynamo. You are producing fruit. We'll talk about John 15 in a minute. Whatever he does prospers. This is the word of God. So my question to us is, do we understand fully through God's word and his Holy Spirit with whom we have been granted fellowship? Do we understand fully with whom we've been granted fellowship? Now he shifts gears a little bit. Here's the message we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. God is all light, no darkness whatsoever. And you see a contrast there. That's part of his writing. Light equals good, true, holy, dark, evil, false, unstable. Jesus is all light. There's no shadow. There's no innuendo. There's no double entendre. 
There's no gray area. Now, I'm stepping on toes because I've had conversations with Christian brothers and sisters for years, and I've used the term myself. Well, that's a gray area. The Bible says, and if in this you differ in any way, go to the Word, keep studying. God will reveal it to you because God is not wishy-washy. God is holy. He's holy all the time. He stays holy. His character is holy. That's who he is. Holy means 100% all the time. And so if we have things in our life, and Satan is a tricky little booger, he's not going to come at you and go, that chair is red. And you're going, no, it's not. It's green, and you can't convince me. But he'll come and you go, what color is that chair? And you start saying things. He's very subtle. He is the master of manipulation. And he loves mucking up the life of those who have been called to be light and salt in this world, ambassadors for Christ Jesus. That's what we're called. If he can trip you up, oh, man, I lost you for eternity. Well, if I can make you miserable, if I can get you self-centered and get your focus off that Jesus guy, then at least you'll be ineffective. God has not called us to impotency. He's called us overcomers. We'll talk about that a little bit, a little bit more. All right? So, God is all light. There's no, no gray area. These are terms of justification we come up. If you want to make a side note on the double entendre, Proverbs 6, 12 through 14 Proverbs 6, 12 through 14. And in contrast with that, words of life, Ephesians 4, 29. That's one you should put in your gun. Verse 1, 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. We has now become John and his readers. This fellowship that he speaks of is a living growing, vibrant, not stagnant, spiritual union with God. To walk in is a metaphor for live in. And in John 15, remain in is used in the same kind of metaphor. Walk in, live in, remain in. And Jesus said, if you remain in me, I'll remain in you, and you will be fruitful. John 15, 5. I have no fruit in my life. Well, it ain't God's problem. Go get lined up, and you will bear fruit. Get lined up with God, and you'll bear fruit. And I go over to Amos chapter 7, and he says to each of us in the church, I'm looking down the plumb line. You're not there. You're over there. What are you doing over there? This is the place of blessing. This focal laser beam place is where I want you, where I will pour out blessing on you, and I will anoint you, and I will bring forth things in your life you didn't even know were possible. And I speak that out of the body of Mark Stone because I have always been a pragmatist. And I can accomplish what I can accomplish. And if God blesses it, great. But there have been moments in my life where Jesus stepped beyond the boundaries of Mark and he did something incredible. So all I could do is fall on my face and go, why don't I do that all the time? Why don't I have been the next scene? My way, my way. You know, it's just like, whoo. All right. I think God encourages those of us like that because he started with fishermen, all right? Basics, if our, if, uh, if our walk doesn't match up with our talk, we are liars. That's basically what it says. Liars are not trusted nor regarded. I'll speak more on that in verse 8. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, two things take place. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That fellowship that he speaks of earlier is in God, in Christ Jesus. Yes, there are times we talk about British Open or A's and Giants, and 
Those are fun things. But the true fellowship is when we're centered upon the person of Christ Jesus, God the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Guess what he did this week? Or guess what God challenged me this week? I just heard a report from a sister this morning. God's doing something incredible and healing in her mom, which we've been praying for. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Praise you in the heavenly realm. The blood that he talks about, this first, this fellowship with us, and we have a hard time with it, or if you don't, I'm the only person on the face of the earth that has a hard time with it. It transcends cultural, ethnic, economic boundaries. We have eternal life because of Jesus. That's our focal point when we come together for fellowship. And it's far beyond the... What kind of job do you do? What's your living? Where do you live? What kind of house? What kind of car do you drive? Where do your kids go to school? And all the other distractions. Where do you politically? Don't even go there. I follow Christ. That's where I'm at politically. This purifying he talks about purifies us from all sin. It's the ongoing sanctifying work and power of his shed blood over, on, in, and through us. Yes, water cleanses externally, but the sacrificial blood talked about purified and set apart what was sacred for God, purifying from sin by making atonement. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Well, the first thing you come to, if you think you don't have sin and you deceive yourself, there's a word for that. It's a fool. We all know, and this is one you all have in your Romans 3, 23, say it with me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many? Some? All. All fall short of the glory of God. John was dealing with a culture permeated with false teaching. The influence in the early churches was significant enough that many straight-faced, open-eyed people believed they were essentially sinless. They sincerely, with all their heart, did not regard the sins they were committing as sinful. And we already see the deception there of Satan at work. One thing, he is never static. He is the father of lies. He is ongoing. And until the day when Jesus takes care of him, he's going to go down swinging. The reason for their deception was matter is evil, breaking God's laws of no moral consequence. So, hey, I'm only human. Or I'm okay, you're okay. Remember that, old people in the room? Live and let live. Can we all get along all right? We end up with moral relativism. Gee, we don't see that in our country in 2018, do we? God has specific rights and wrongs. I'm going to him. He's the standard. He's the standard. Have we found ourselves measuring sin relatively? Hey, I don't cost much. I only stole a little. I ain't no Bernie Madoff. Hey, because we have younger generation in here, I will change this to, hey, it's only late night private computer watching, me, myself, and I. I'm not harming anybody. It's not like I'm out having an affair. The good news comes to us out of verse 9. If we confess, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here's a fact. We're all going to sin at one time or another, whether unknowingly or willingly or suddenly or accidentally. Now what? Because God hates sin. One nine, one nine. Pull out the gun, open the chamber, put that bullet in there. If you don't have that by now, you better have it by the end of today. I'm coming to every one of your houses and you have to recite it for me. All right? If we confess, now, confession and repentance are inferred in the entirety of the book of 1 John, and you can also find that in references in the Old Testament. Otherwise, what happens is, yeah, I'm entering into sin here. Don't worry, I'll do that 1 John 1, 9 thing. I'll confess it to you, and then get on. 
and I'm probably going to repeat it and do it again. I'll just keep it. Oh, yeah, you're fooling God. The Bible is very clear. It's a terrible, horrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You don't play games with God. And when he says confess, he is talking about confession and repentance. It is turning away from sin that so easily entangles and turning to God whose response toward those who genuinely confess their sins will be in accordance with his nature. He remains faithful to his promise to forgive. You want promises where he forgives? Jeremiah 31, 34. J 31, 34. Micah 7, 18, 19. Hebrews 10, and 23. If I had more time, we'd read all those. I just think of what Jesus said. And he healed certain people and he brought them back to a place of rightness. And they came to him Okay, now what's the expectation? And Jesus said, go and sin no more. It's not complicated. We've made religion complicated. The word of God is straightforward, shoots like an arrow, it pierces. And it makes evidently clear to those who really want to look into it an answer, the answer that they're actually looking for in their soul. In 110... If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. That both breaks my heart and terrifies me to read that verse. If we claim we haven't sinned, I kind of put it this way. If we live in denial or try to paint ourselves as something we're not, we seriously tarnish the veracity and character of God in the eyes of the world. And the reality of mere religion an empty philosophical emotional crutch upon which we lean in futility of being. To one, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Hey, kids, I'm giving you all this information so you won't sin, but... If you do, if you break the law, I've got news for you. You have the most powerful, influential attorney in the universe. He has an in with the judge. In God's court, the defender must be and is sinless. He's the only one, and he is your attorney. So if you flub the dub, get to God and say, I need your help. 1-800-SAVE-MY-BACON. And 2-2, this verse says he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'm paraphrasing from the original Greek. It's he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. We know that God made a rule, Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. God said it. It's done deal. God's holiness demands punishment for sin. God, out of love, sent his son to make atonement for the believer's sin, appeasing God's wrath. Now, the forgiveness through Christ's atoning sacrifice is not limited to one particular group. It is worldwide. Jesus died on the cross for a person in Paraguay right now. He died on the cross who lives in Portugal, in Russia, in China, Brazil, and on and on goes to live. It must, however, be received by faith, just like us. So John is not teaching universalism but that God is an impartial God. When he died on the cross, it was for every person that would turn to him. John 1, 12, and 13. You can put that one down. Yet to all who received him, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born naturally of a human father, but born of God. Woohoo! John 1, 12, and 13. Verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. 
And I want to read with that. We know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. Five, three, and four. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. I prayed with a brethren here this morning. He used that term overcome, and I recognize from the notes, amen. This is love for God to obey his commands. His commands are not burdensome. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Not because his commands are light or easy to obey, but because of our new birth. See, natural mark, I don't do so well. Christ in mark, there's some hope, folks. The one born of God by faith is enabled to obey by God's Holy Spirit. This does not mean in this passage we know we've come to know him if we obey his commands. It does not mean that only those who never disobey know God, but those whose lives are generally characterized by obedience. Verse 4, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I love reading the word of God. And I think of our world where right now in America, you have to guard every word you say. I like John's writing. You're a liar. What? Just because I lied, you're calling me a liar? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And then with 2, 4... I want you to have 3, 6, and 3, 9. If you want to write those down on the side. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. We're almost there, folks. I'm, I'm just a little bit over time. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. John is not asserting sinless perfection. That is an impossibility. We know that. But explaining the believer's life is characterized by doing what's right. Verse 9. No one who's born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. The picture is one of human reproduction. God's spiritual DNA has been given to each one of us in this room. And because I'm Mark and I'm a human being and I like oxygen, I cannot dive into a pool of water and go, no problem, I'll just breathe water. <gasps> oh, yes, I'm glad I have gills. Oh, that's right, I don't have gills. I'm drowning, what an idiot. In the same manner, now take that and flip it over. You cannot continue to sin because the Holy Spirit of God, his spiritual DNA must make you want to vomit. If our lukewarmness over in the book of Revelation, lukewarmness, I wish you were hot, on fire for me, or cold. You hate my guts. But you're lukewarm. You're wishy-washy. And because you're lukewarm, you make me want to puke. If we have sin in our lives, it should be something so distasteful to us that it reviles us. And we recognize it. And we go, bleh, bleh. Where'd that come from? I, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm back on track, Father. Here I go. All right? And we'll close out with 2, 5, and 6. I found this to be a double-edged sword, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him, or in another version, love for God is made complete in him. And this is, I think of it as a two-edged sword. It's kind of a two-way. It can kind of mean be read two ways. God's love for us becomes so fully realized in us, it moves us to act of obedience, act of obedience. We are impelled. The love of God impels me. I don't have a choice in this. I, I can't help it. I, I got to. I've got to. I got no string to hold me down. <laughs> I, I'm impelled the love of God. Or flip it around. Our love for God, our admiration, respect, and gratitude for God, and all that we are and have in Christ drives us in full expression to acts of obedience. They, 
I can only t- when you're falling and you're on fire and you get jacked, it's like great drugs. I love serving Jesus. You saw BAW? I had a blast with the kids. I would love to have done that every night for the next, and surpassed cats. <laughs> I love it. It's exciting. And if you're not in children's ministry, have you ever considered it? There's something incredibly awesome about working with kids. Kids, fifth grade and under. You can reach them. You can reach them. There's, the clay hasn't been left out of the Play-Doh jar too long. Have you ever done, you know, that one's no good. You don't leave the Play-Doh out of the, but it's still malleable. And I think of God in Ezekiel. I'm taking out your heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. Something I can work with. You should go, take my heart of stone, Father. I don't want it. I want you to have something you can work with. And let's close with verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. It's a life of submission, of sacrifice, and obedience to God our Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your living word. I pray, Lord, you energize us, not of our own flesh and blood, not of excitement or entertainment, but through the truth of who you are, your character, your love and your mercy and your compassion over us, over our families and over our lives and over this church. Father God, thank you for all the people that labored this last week, for yesterday, and they did it as a labor of love for you, Lord, and towards Sue and I. I'm grateful for that, God. It's humbling. I understand, Lord, when you say it's better to give than receive. It's hard to receive. It is humbling, Lord God. But I thank you for every person that served and worked and brought in goods and sorted. And we're here during the week and here all day yesterday and cleaning up. We do these things, I hope you know this, Lord, because we love you. We are dependent upon you, Lord God. We call out to you. Be our strength. Be our Savior. Be our Lord. Cast down every idol. Make us aware of the idols. Make us aware of sin we don't even know about, Father, because we are often blinded, Father, in our weakness. We call out to you out of our weakness. And in our weakness, we are made strong because everything comes from you. We ask this for your name's sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.